0: For Memorial Day, get 15% off your borough purchase at borough.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at borough.com slash ACAST.
1: Hello, Glowworms. Vanity Von Glow here for the latest episode of The Vanity Project. I've been reflecting recently about how I came to be the artist that I am today. What events in my own life set the stage for me becoming not just a performer, but, you know, a drag queen. From where do I draw my marginal perspective? Because it's more than just growing up gay in rural Scotland for me. In my own home, my sister and I were educated in different school systems. So I went to a private school, she went to the local comprehensive. Throughout my life, I've been around enormously affluent but also fairly impoverished friends and loved ones. And as a drag queen, I've spilled champagne at media events in Freemasons Hall, but then gone home to my dingy flat with, you know, mice in the kitchen and I'm struggling to pay rent. So much of my life has given me this insider's view, but from an outsider's perspective. I don't begrudge the well-off their comforts or successes. But I am curious about the world we live in and what more we could be doing to help support the people at the bottom of life's ladder. It's become personal for me recently as I've learned more and more about my birth mother. I was taken into care as a baby while my birth parents struggled with various addictions and traumas in the heroin heyday of early 90s Scotland. When I was four I was adopted to a good middle-class home with parents who have supported and loved both me and my sister with consistency and compassion ever since. But the life I was taken away from, it would have panned out so differently, there's no doubt. We hear a lot about privilege in today's discourse, and the idea of a profound and unearned luck in circumstances is one I've considered since I was old enough to understand my adoption. I grew up in a comfortable home with a good education, but by rights... I was a baby born in some pretty terrible circumstances and it seems only by luck that i've been able to have the life that i've had people with the problems that my birth parents were dealing with are in dire straits to have your children taken away from you must surely be rock bottom i'd love to say that the drug situation in scotland has massively improved from the 1990s but This year Scotland is still the drugs overdose capital of Europe and families are still being torn apart by drugs misuse all over the UK. Today's guest is a campaigner for drugs policy reform in Scotland, specifically focusing on intravenous drug users, people whose lives are already falling apart because of heroin and other drugs. In Glasgow he set up a drug consumption van, an overdose prevention measure, which allows drug injecting people who obviously are fiendishly addicted to powerful and dangerous drugs, to use in relative safety in a way which limits the impact on the broader local community. Addicts are going to get their fix, and the van gives them a place to use that keeps them out of alleyways and residential closes and shopfronts. So this was a controversial step which saw resistance from police and the judiciary, but several months on, the Scottish government appears to be increasingly open to a change in drugs policy. He's here to tell us more, and I'm thrilled to have him on The Vanity Project. I hope you enjoy our conversation with the brilliant Peter Cricant. I am delighted today to be joined by Peter Cricant, Peter is well known around the world for setting up the UK's first overdose prevention van, sometimes more widely known as a drug consumption room. And Peter has faced criminalisation for providing people with a safe place to take drugs. Uh, He's run for parliament and just a few weeks ago uh, he met Her Majesty the Queen. Uh, Peter, thank you for joining me today. I wonder if uh, you could discuss a bit of your story and what got you so motivated to risk prison to provide a safe place for
2: people who use drugs in Glasgow. Yeah, thanks very much for having me, Vanity. It's really nice to be on the show. And um, yeah, I, I suppose that is a statement that I use quite regularly. You know, if, if I'm doing something illegal here, come and arrest me, you know, take me to prison. I mean, the, the simple reality is I was driven to do that because of my own personal experience. You know, I was a public injecting um, homeless drug user over 20 years ago, you know, now However, people are still in those same conditions when they don't have to be. You know, we've got evidence from all around the world now, you know, various different cities, I think over seventy-seven cities around the world now have um, drug consumption rooms. And all the evidence says that not only are they beneficial for people who use drugs, but they're also beneficial for society, you know, less discarded equipment, more people getting into treatment. So, you know, that reduces the illicit supply, illicit drug use, uh, which, you know, cuts down the, the supply of criminal gangs. Uh, and um, yeah, I started working in this field, seeing that trauma and that pain and that despair as a homeless outreach worker, Um, working with an HIV project in Glasgow, um, where we were out testing people on the streets who were homeless with rapid HIV tests um, at the height of an ongoing outbreak of HIV, the the largest outbreak that the UK has seen in the last 30 years, and I was seeing all this pain, all this trauma, people going behind, you know, in alleyways, behind uh, garbage disposal bins, uh, you know, next to urine and faeces and uh, knowing that it didn't need to be like that. So I just thought, I'm going to go ahead and do this. You know, civil disobedience, um, unjust laws are made to be broken.
1: Yes. So you established a service van in the, is it the Trongate area of Glasgow? Yeah, get Yeah. So I used to walk through there every day. I lived in the Garbles uh, when I was in Glasgow, and so every single day we'd walk down that area. Um, and so you've set up a van where people who are intravenously using drugs can go, and they can. There's a needle exchange already in existence, but in the van, it's a safe, enclosed, private space where they can use because they're addicted. Um, and uh, and this brought you up against the full force. Uh, or at least some of the force of the law and law enforcement. What happened when the police came knocking on the side of the van?
2: So initially we, we uh, didn't know what to expect. The police kind of monitored the service the first couple of weeks we were out and then it took a step back. But after a number of weeks, um, all of a sudden, right out of the blue, the police tried to intervene So they wanted to get into the van while there was three homeless people in the back of the van, allegedly in possession of substances, and um, it wasn't safe to open the door, um, either for the police officers or for the people who were in the van. You know that's one of the main dangers of public injecting drug use. If somebody's injecting in an alleyway and the police walk through, or a member of the public walks through, and they rush and they push the injection in, especially given yeah. that most people are groining are, are injecting in their groin in Glasgow, um, it can go into an artery. It can go in. Um, it can cause abscesses and infections. Um, so we didn't open the door. And the police charged me with uh, an obstruction um, in the course of a search under Section 23A of the Misuse of Drugs Act. Um, it was quite quite funny, to be honest, because um, the Crown and Prosecutor Fiscal Service sent me a letter saying if I accept a warning, that it won't go any further. And I sent the letter back saying I'm not accepting your warning. Um, the simple reality is we... Uh, I I didn't, and the people who were volunteering alongside me didn't believe that we were breaking any laws. We're providing a recognized, internationally recognized way to reduce the harm caused by um, public injecting drug use.
1: So some people listening might think um, who are less familiar with the whole subject matter of intravenous drug use and the effects on communities and the the sort of legacy effects on the kids of people who use and stuff like that might not understand what a drug consumption room actually is. In fact, a drug consumption room, to a lot of the people I know, sounds like a fabulous night in. Um, but really, you set these up because they're intended as overdose prevention rooms, right? That people are using drugs and, it, it, you know, if we can make the people who are addicted use the drugs in the mo- most safe and least damaging way possible that's a net good for communities
2: um and for the users themselves right so yeah we've got examples now of, of uh drug consumption rooms around the world like she's saying some people may think that these are uh, you know a great place to be um and in some cases they are you know we've got Thousands of them all over the UK. They're called bars and nightclubs, um, where people go and safely consume su- substances. It's just called alcohol rather than heroin or cocaine. Um, but examples in Copenhagen of H17, the world's largest drug consumption room, where you know they have drug checking facilities. So not only um, does do people not overdose and die within the facility, it actually makes the illicit supply chain around the facility and wider, um, less dangerous because drug dealers know that people are going to go and get their drugs tested, so they stop putting rubbish into it. Um, There's never been a recorded fatality in any of these sites with millions of visits to them. If we look at places like the medically supervised consumption facility in Sydney, Around 80% of the people who actually attend that facility accept referrals into treatment services. So, you know, again, it's that, that ability to actually um, break down the criminal supply without having to go and bust the criminals, because that doesn't work. You know, it's, 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 we've been trying that for 50 years. The Misuse of Drugs Act celebrate, celebrated 50 years in May this year. Um, so we need to try these new solutions to deal with Scotland and the UK's drug death crisis. We have got a drug death crisis which is by far and away the worst in Europe. Now, you know, we yeah. we, we have mm-hmm. Scotland fifteen times the amount of people dying on an annual basis than the European average. It's, it's 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 through the roof now, and it's not just people dying; it's all the associated harms and issues that come with drug use that. That aren't being dealt with.
1: Absolutely, um, I feel that you know this is the this is our first season of the Vanity Project as a podcast, and uh, we've had some really great conversations uh, with different guests. And this is the first one which is on a subject I think that 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 has a such a specific stigma, and obviously, um, I think some people would be curious as to to, to my own, you know what. This is an unusual conversation for me to be having. Potentially, um, I think that first and foremost, because I'm an entertainer, I work in clubs and and bars and and the nightlife. I have uh, I have my own opinion or my, my suspected opinion about uh, the laws around criminalisation for drugs generally. I don't think are necessarily working, um, but it goes a little further back for me. Um, my own story in life began with parental neglect, addiction, and abuse. um, And I was adopted when I was... Well, I was taken into foster care when I was a baby and then adopted. Um, and that was in 1989. Uh, so I'm 32 years old. I was born in Dundee, a city which now, in 2021, has the mm-hmm. highest overdose death in Europe uh, from, from yeah. heroin. Um, and, you know... So for me, this is very real that the impact on users and their inability to then fulfill other responsibilities they have looking after their kids, holding down a job, you know, uh, these problems are real. They affect communities in a a holistic way. And so I think that the work that you're doing, um, I'm very curious about because it sounds to me like it's a roll up your sleeves and actually try something new to resolve these issues approach. And we live in a kind of clerical time. There's a lot of red tape, but you had to uh, kind of just barge through that when you set up the van. It seems to me that what you're doing, uh, I mean, some people would argue it's illegal, right? Uh, Certainly the Lord Advocate in Scotland was cautious in his handling of you uh, because they're not quite sure what the legal
2: status is of. Uh, of these drug consumption rooms, right? That's right, yeah. I think we, we've seen some changes in Scotland recently with the appointment of a new Lord Advocate um, recently it's announcing that we would have a diversion scheme in place for all substances, including Class A substances, um, which should hopefully make the, the, the operation and the opening of an official facility Um, a little bit more straightforward because that's always what we've asked for, a non-prosecution stance or a diversion scheme where people who are out publicly injecting drugs can be um, diverted into these facilities because I think places like Dundee, as you've mentioned, um, could desperately do with a a drug consumption facility. Um, Per head head of population, Dundee has one of the worst um, problems in the world for uh, drug-related deaths. Um, Yeah. But it's the bigger, like, again, like you've already touched on, it's the bigger societal problems that problematic drug use lead to. You know, like parental uh, substance use can often lead to neglect and children not having uh, proper care. Um, and that, for me, all of this is driven by the criminalization of drugs, you know, by the war on drugs, you know, President Nixon standing up in 1971 and saying we need an all-out offensive war on drugs. You yeah. know, the Misuse of Drugs Act 1971. We go back to, you know, 1914 and the New York Times leading on our story on the front page that, you know, the new scourge of the South um, for Negroes uh, was making them bulletproof because they were sniffing cocaine, you know, because they could no longer get whiskey due to prohibition of alcohol you know so there's there's this ingrained sort of societal war when we call it a war on drugs when actually it's a war on, on on humanity it's a war on people drugs in my opinion and this is a step forward to the uh, decriminalizing drugs should be all regulated drugs should be all regulated each time somebody goes to take a drug they should know the content they should know what's in it People who are problematic users should be allowed to get prescriptions that they need to keep them safe, that they don't need to go out stealing or begging or cheating to 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 get the money to buy illegal drugs. You know, that's that's where our problems for me all exist within the criminalization and the stigmatization of people who use drugs. Cause
1: there's a cat and mouse effect there, isn't there? That, you know, when 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 drug use is is a criminal offense then it becomes incumbent on the criminal justice system to pursue uh people <laughs> who are using yeah. drugs uh you know we we have a general understanding like in the UK now. Nobody really wants the casual weed smoker to go to jail for smoking weed, right? We find that to be absurd. You look at, we're always reading now about the opioid crisis in America, you know, of of prescribed medications and a a population who are addicted to, I don't know, Xanax or Vicodin or whatever else. Um, So there is sort of a thing here about some drugs are okay and some drugs aren't. Um, when I think about how these problems existed 30 years ago, and you're going back even further to, you know, the 70s and the, the late 60s, uh, when a lot of this attitude towards drugs became codified in manifestos and government pledges, um, we maybe forget over that space of time, like, who, who becomes somebody who injects drugs, drugs? For example, in Scotland now, who, who, who is the injecting drug user? It's easy to lose the person, the people, the people with kids, with families, with parents, with, you know, lives. Um, You you have a very human approach because this is part of your own history and part of your own story. What's your
2: experience? Are are we seeing people from all backgrounds? What's going on? Yeah, I think, um, you know, we know that the people who are dying in Scotland, it's, it's, it's statistically proven that, you know if you come from an area that's traditionally uh, economically deprived that you have uh, 18 more 18 more 18 times more likelihood of dying from a, a preventable drug death um, than the more affluent areas. So we know that that's where a lot of the, the drug use is coming from. Um, a lot of people are, are sort of in those uh, sorry, cycles of family addiction, you know, and it runs through families and it kind of gets passed down through, through de- generations. Um, but again, it's like that. For me, that's a societal problem, you know, and that's a... a Relationship with with drugs that we need to we need to move away from because people in affluent areas are taking drugs as well they're just taking them in different ways and then taking them without the consequences of somebody who hasn't got the money to take them right you know so they have to go out and they have to commit crime they have to start selling drugs to to feed their own uh, addictions um so that starts the vicious cycle of in and out of the prison system we know at the moment um you know, a quarter of the prison population is for uh, people who are using drugs who have got crimes connected to street-level drug use. You know, we're not not talking about people sitting in prison for drug dealing. We're talking about people sitting in prison for low-level crimes linked to their drug use or possession charges, you know, which is absolutely insane. And although cannabis now is seen as much more, uh, you know, acceptable, Um, We still see a lot of people going to prison. I I read about a young guy here in Falkirk, um, in in the Falkirk Herald recently, who got sent to prison for 23 months for cannabis plants in his house. Um, you know, these are the types of people that we should be employing. You know, we should be giving these people jobs and yeah. allowing them to just distribute these substances locally. I mean, one of the hardest parts about my campaign um, over the last two years, 18 months, two years, has been the amount of families that have got in touch with me to say that they've lost a loved one, you know, like um, a son, a brother, a sister, you know, a parent, um, a daughter. And... Often it's a really difficult conversation because they, they blame the the where the drugs came from, but yeah, actually yeah. it's not where the drugs came from that that is to blame. It's where the drugs are not coming from because the majority of our deaths are because of the illicit supply chain. I mean, you mentioned heroin in Dundee. The reality is that one of the biggest killers now in, in Scotland, including Dundee, is street benzodiazepines, um, which. Yeah we created the need for that you know they're they're made in some some flat in glasgow somewhere by some gang you know and and, um, nobody knows what's in them they're killing people every day
1: yeah yeah um when you set up the initial fundraiser for your um for your um overdose prevention van how long ago was that when you were first raising the money together for it
2: well that, that would have been about um the start of the pandemic, so was that March 2020, around about then, yeah. when I very first set up the first fundraiser, yeah. which was closed down. Right, that's right. So it was closed down by one,
1: I suppose it was an online platform that you were trying to uh, sort of garner support through. Um, yeah. Do you want to name them? <laughs> <laughs> um, was it those bastards at change.org? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was it was just giving, right? Um, I believe. And is, yeah. it's is it, you, your feeling is that that would that's just because it's sort of a blanket, controversial, illegal seeming thing, so they just kind of have to shut it down because they don't want to be associated with potential wrongdoing. Is that that's the basis there?
2: Yeah, I think so. And I think it potentially it was um, the police authority that contacted them because just around about the same time, not long after that, I got my first van, um, which I insured. And then within a week of getting the insurance policy on the van, I got contacted by the insurance company to say that we are cancelling your insurance, that the police authority have been in contact with us. Um, So so there was certainly a couple of hurdles to to overcome at the beginning before um, actually getting the van out.
1: Well, you actually lost your job as well, right? So you were working. Were you working for a health organisation or charity organisation or both?
2: Yeah, I was working for uh, an organisation called Waverly Care, which are quite well known in Scotland. They were originally set up um, in the 80s and they ran Milestone, which was the um, sort of palliative care for. Um, people um, living with HIV in the 80s, around about the same time as the the big outbreaks um, in the 80s. Um, And it was really unfortunate, the the whole thing with Waverly Care. I mean, I kind of put my tail between my legs and just said, okay when I went and announced on the Friday I was going to open this service, I was working at Waverly Care three days a week and then the Monday morning I went and had a meeting with the manager and they were like, there's a conflict of interest. I was like, well, I'm only going to do this on my days off and I'm doing a good job while I'm here. I want a job. But they were like, no, we can't support you. And I just kind of walked away from it at that point and said, that's fine then. Had I known what I'd known just a few weeks later, I wouldn't have walked away from it as easily as I did. I would have said, "No, if you want to actually sack me, sack me, mm-hmm. um, because I'm not doing anything illegal here." And, and I still yeah, believe yeah. firmly right now that overdose prevention sites, safe injecting facilities, drug consumption rooms, as long as they're for injection and not for in- inhalation, make that clear. Um, right. I'm not illegal under the misuse of drugs. That's so right. I and I was disappointed in them afterwards, but they did what they need to do. All their money's coming from government funding and the way it works in Scotland. Everybody's scared to put their heads, heads above the parapet in case they lose their funding.
1: Well, yes, and there, it's funny because there's it's, this is part of human nature that seems to never go away, is that you're doing something a bit funny over there and you, it's making your colleagues uneasy. Um <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And, and, and you know, people talk about cancel culture and people's activism or 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 efforts to affect change being the reason they lose their job. That's something that people are very sensitive to at the moment. People are quite worried about But you really rolled your sleeves up and I suppose paid, paid a price professionally for that um, at the time. Um, how much of your time now does the van take up? I expect you're quite busy.
2: Well, I... I a couple of months ago gave the van to a third sector charity in England. And okay. What they're doing with it is they're touring the UK. So they've recently went from... The, the, the organisation's based in Bristol, um, but last week, uh, they, or a couple of weeks ago, they took it to Leeds for its first event. Um, and there's talk about Blackpool next and then Wales. So they're touring different councils and different areas with it. And they're, they're showing... Um, hopefully police and crime commissioners and um, people who commission drug and alcohol services in in different areas, what can be done? And what can be done really simply? I mean, after the old transit that we started with and people saw that it was serious, the donations started flooding in. So we were able to upgrade to an ambulance, a decommissioned ambulance, which was a real sort of visual... health response to a health issue, you know, so um, I think them touring with it now will be a great uh, means to continue to push this debate forward. Um, Towards the end, when I was running the service, um, one of the main um, stumbling blocks was capacity. Um, I would often have three people in the back of the van injecting heroin or cocaine, and I'd have a queue of people outside waiting you know like maybe six people waiting outside the van um, to get in. Um, It's it's one of those ones though you know where when people are buying drugs the drug dealer comes at the same time so everybody gets their drugs at the same time so all of a sudden you know you've got this queue of nine, ten people waiting to get in to to come into the van and and the fact that people were queuing outside the van every day um, towards the end really sort of nailed home that if we had one of these facilities in Glasgow City Centre, people would use it. You know, they would come, they would use it.
1: You need to start charging entry. It sounds like a, <laughs> it's like a thoroughfare. Um,
2: well, yeah, I could have charged some heroin or cocaine maybe.
1: I, I know that some, I suppose that the, the, the visual of, of people queuing up to use their drugs in a more safe environment, some people that's a kind of dystopian vision um you know that's the kind of future that would make old grannies in the 50s clutch their pearls um i mean i believe that we have to accept that like addiction is a reality of the human experience like we are you know on a spiritual basis you could argue you know everyone is addicted to something everybody has something that they're holding on to and it's it's hard for them to, to process and let go of um but talking of visuals, so obviously you've now upgraded to a decommissioned ambulance and you're aware of the, the sort of power of that image um, in transitioning people's thinking from this as a criminal issue to a health issue. How important is theatre and the theatre of images to your work? Because it strikes me that... When the police come knocking on the van door and they issue you with a caution and then uh, the Lord Advocate says he'll, you know, that'll turn into a warning and then you reject that and say, no, you're going to have to prosecute me and then they choose not to prosecute you because they're not certain about the actual legality of this uh, of this legislation. There is theatre to all of that. That's a story. Uh, it has all the components of, of good theatre and a lot of resistance inside of it. That's that's kind of... that's the part of the story that people latch onto and that's made this a media sensation. Um, so it strikes me, uh, you're the second Peter we've had on on the Vanity Project and with Peter Tatchell, a lot of his uh, activism has had that theatrical staging element to it. How important is that to your work?
2: Yeah, 100%, uh, I think a lot of it is, is about sort of gathering that, that sort of theatre response. So, you know, I would, in the past, I've took the, the van out to Holyrood, um, the original uh, van, f- the first time around and stood outside Holyrood and inviting the media and the press along to see that and um, speaking about the then health minister, Joe Fitzpatrick, being in his, you know, £100,000 job sitting in his office um, hiding under his table, um, not wanting to come out and see the service, you know, uh, that, that at that point had already sa- saved um, three or four people's lives. You know, and then we did the same um, this year on August the 31st, which was, again, it was a bit theatrical. We launched the first service on August thirty first 31st, to 2020. And then on August the 31st this year, we took the ambulance to Holyrood um, for International Overdose Awareness Day, uh, yep. and uh, part of that, and part of that theatre, I suppose, was getting a speaker from every political party. Um, even the Conservatives um, agreed to to come along and have a speaker, um, which was quite unusual because politically, the Conservatives in Scotland are the only party that haven't backed my campaign and haven't backed overdose prevention um, facilities. But it's all part of that uh, playing along to the media, isn't it? Because we need the media on our side. The media yeah. is where the changes happen because it's the media that, that 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 speaks to the public, you know. And if the public um, have this awareness that these facilities uh, and other. Um, Things that we just don't see a lot of or don't have at all in certain parts of the UK, like heroin assisted treatment, actually have so many benefits to society as a whole. If the public see that through the media, um, and the media portray that as uh, you know a benefit to everybody, then eventually the governments need to listen because it's it's, it's the public who vote. And unfortunately, right now, they're only driven by, I mean, we've seen Sir Keir Stammer, you know, who we would expect to be standing up for people like me from economically deprived areas and backgrounds, you know, who have issues with substances, saying that he wouldn't change anything. You know, he wouldn't Mm -hmm. change anything. I mean, that is not the labour that I grew up with in the late 70s and 80s in Scotland. You know, the labour that would stand with the miners, that would stand with the workers that would stand with people from economically deprived areas, um, you know we we don't have that now in Labour. So unfortunately, I think where we're at just now is it's a real push through um, Scotland to, to get some of these changes. And what we need to do, what we really need to do is we need to get some of that theatre into the right-wing media, so the Daily Mails and the LBCs and the GB Newsies, because it's, it's all fine and well getting some of that get in the theatre and the Guardian and uh, Vice and, you know, the places where you expect it to be. Uh, but we need to reach different audiences now.
1: When you talk, because uh, you, you were just saying um, there's a distinction here in what your van the service that it provides is, is specifically here, we're talking intravenous drug use, and you made clear to mention that that's not drugs to be inhaled. Now, am I right in understanding the reason for that distinction is that the existing legislation was drafted in a time where intravenous drug use wasn't actually really thought of, wasn't known about or perhaps not even happening. So it's through that kind of loophole or the fact that drug use has, uh, I don't want to say modernized, but it, it, uh, the legislation is obsolete to the drugs that people use now or to some of the drugs that people use now. Um, Which sort of brings the issue of what is the actual legal position here, because the UK government, a Conservative government, and I I feel like this, because, because the Conservatives will view this as a law and order issue, perhaps more than a health issue, that's why this specifically in the purview of Priti Patel, who's the Home Secretary, who I've always thought has the air of a Hollyoaks villain to her, uh, like you know a low-level villain. She's not a Batman villain, she's just a Hollyoaks villain. Um, but, uh, but you know she wouldn't countenance changes to how the policy around intravenous drug use, she wouldn't, she wouldn't have that change in England. In Scotland though the position seems to be, and what your activism is oriented towards, is that the Scottish government could claim this as a health issue if they wish, um, and you're trying to embolden the existing government in Scotland under Nicola Sturgeon to take this and run with it, and actually, you know, use that because it is a devolved power, and Scotland has a unique issue here with intravenous drug use. Um, what what are the obstructions within? Is it within the SNP? I mean, because it's one thing the Westminster issue. Um, but but it seems like there's some political will. You've actually met the first minister, um, and her health advisors. So there there seems to be a relationship there. What's holding things up?
2: Yes, that's a it's a really difficult one because you're right. I've met Nicola Sturgeon on a couple of occasions now. I've met with uh, the new drug policy minister on a number of occasions as well, and. The drug policy minister, Angela Constance, was recently quoted in the newspaper to say that we are going to go ahead and open drug consumption rooms and we're not going to wait for Westminster to say so. So it, it, for me, as somebody who's not a politician, I'm just like, well, when? You know, like, I could give me £50,000, which is like a drop in the ocean for the yep. drug and alcohol budget, and I'll go and open one tomorrow, you know, like, literally, and there'll be yeah, enough that strikes me that that actually
1: this is not a it doesn't have to be a a, a high cost enterprise cuz at the end of the day um you know it, it it's it's providing a small amount of space to you don't you know you don't need chandeliers and uh, <laughs> and swimming pools <laughs> in these facilities these are simple facilities for for people, So actually, we're not talking about yeah. some enormous cost. In fact, the enormous cost is
2: to our communities, uh, ex- as it stands, yeah. right? As it stands, as it stands. Yeah, the businesses and the residents and the people in Glasgow where there's high levels of public injecting drug use. You know, those are the people that are suffering because we've not got these facilities. Um, There doesn't have to, like you said, there doesn't have to be a massive cost to these facilities, but Scotland, if we open them, will most likely make it a massive cost, because everything in Scotland is controlled by the NHS. So the third sector organisations in England and Wales that do the prescribing and run a lot of the the services, none of that happens in Scotland. In Scotland, as an example, we've got heroin-assisted treatment in Glasgow. Uh I believe that it's uh, 19 people that are currently on the heroin-assisted treatment. It's medically run, and it costs nearly £2 million per year. Now, the same could be run in England, and it is being run in England through the third sector for a third of that cost. So everything's three times more expensive in Scotland because it's medically, medically supervised and run by the NHS. But these facilities could be run on a shoestring budget. I mean, we could have third sector organizations in there. Like you say, we don't need chandeliers. We need some stainless steel tables, a bunch of chairs, and then another room where people can be filtered into after they've used drugs if they need any medical supervision. You know, and that can be disconnected from the actual supervised injection area altogether. So you don't even need medical staff in there.
1: What appetite is there, do you find, in Glasgow for volunteer assistance with this kind of thing? I ask because, um, well, on the one hand, it seems to me that there might be, some people may be anxious about volunteering in this particular area on, on safety grounds, right? Some people are skittish around people who are... We were using, etc., etc. But I did read that there were students from the university who were signed up to volunteer or were planning to volunteer, but kind of got their knuckles wrapped or were spooked by the university telling them this is going to adversely affect your prospects or your job prospects. Now, I know it did adversely affect you and your job to do this, but this is supposed to be the great revolutionary generation of the new millennium. And I'm kind of su- surprised that they would have been frightened off so easily because. Is it just that this is not necessarily a, a, a cause that rewards them on social media the way that other popular causes do? Is it that it's actual getting your feet wet work? What's going on? Well,
2: I mean, it didn't scare all of them off. Um, one medical student who will obviously remain unnamed actually treated somebody with naloxone and saved somebody's life. Um, oh, they, wow, didn't ever, wow. yeah, they didn't that's, ever want to be named. That's... That's
1: the drug that can prevent overdose when an overdose is coming on. Right, it's sort
2: of a... Is that right? Well, it reverses an overdose. So if somebody's actually having an overdose, if somebody's in an overdose situation from an opiate-based drug like heroin or fentanyl, um, naloxone can be either injected or it can be a nasal spray as well, which is uh, in trial by getting uh, carried by police. They want to carry nasals rather than injectable kits. so yeah, a, a, a student within, uh, sorry, a, a Glasgow University medical student created a Google Doc asking for volunteers and within an hour, 80 people had signed up on that Google Doc um, wow. to come and volunteer um, who were all connected with Glasgow University in one way or another. Um, like you said, the university came down like a ton of bricks. You know, they, they said some stuff in the letter to all the students. Uh, which was actually completely factually incorrect. You know, like yeah. it was, it was, it was way out there. Some of the stuff that they said, saying, and also saying th- things that that were, you know, just scaremongering, trying to scare the students away. Some of them continued to to support us, and as I said, one student actually saved somebody's life. Um, but you're right; some of this just doesn't attract the attention that that people want in terms of. Um, certainly the university they don't want the attention well
1: it's one of those things that like the great issues of the day that are you know we saw in our lockdown people are really ready and i suppose I suppose think what you will of instagram activism people were really ready to engage or at least have conversations or be seen to be having conversations around race and around uh you know around immigration and all the other issues of the day but uh if you when you look at uh even the 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 horrible drama uh, of of uh, the tragedy of George Floyd's death. You know, the man was struggling with his own drug issues there as well, and you know was 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 full of, of fentanyl. And so, actually, th- there there's a whole discussion we need to have as a society around all of the issues that feed into one another, um, and they're not to be had in isolation. So, um, I think that one of the things that's great about the the catchiness, in a way. Of what you've done, and uh, like I say, the theatre of it is that it gets that kind of conversation going within the media. Um, for me, I, I'm living in London and I've been here for nine years, and I have noticed a marked increase of homelessness in the time I've been here. You see it, you know, and you see people who are struggling, and also I've moved to various different areas, and different areas have a higher incidence of people sleeping rough or or using and 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 it seems to me again, I'm working in Soho, I'm in the in the nightlife, um, and I'm friends with some homeless people, you know. They, they'll come and they try and get a fag off it. and you see the same people all the time, uh, Kaz in Soho and a few of the others, and you're you're friendly with them and you know them and they're characters in your life that you see you see and you say hello to. And and I don't think I know of any of them who aren't also addicts and struggling and that the homelessness and the addiction are kind of part of the same thing so for me i am not sure what i can do in, in 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 my in my capacity as a ridiculous entertainer but it's been one of the things that's been so uh great about being able to talk to you today is um starting the wheels of motion around uh around more conversations that i feel better equipped to have now with people around these issues.
2: Yeah, and, and that's I think that's what we can all do. You know, we can all continue to have these conversations because there is a bigger societal um, issue here that we, we all need to discuss. You know, you're right, homelessness certainly street homelessness and addiction tends to go hand in hand. You know, having right. worked with street homelessness and experienced street homelessness myself, I, I can't remember anybody from my own time um, sleeping rough who wasn't on the streets due to either alcohol or drug addiction, you know, right, that, was, exactly. that was kind of the driver that, that gets people to that that place in life. Um, or, or as a result, sometimes, I think sometimes people do who have been, um, you know placed in a position where they experience homelessness they turn to alcohol and drugs to, to to deal with that you know to to deal with the pain and the misery that comes along with it um you know because sleeping out in the street every night is physically very painful yeah um so yeah i mean that's what we can all do have those conversations you know continue to talk about how we need to reform this um i think what i'm focused on now is i'm focused on safe supply of prescription medications to people Because ultimately, what we've all fed into, what the media have fed into, what the public feed into, is that drugs are bad. Therefore, the solution is to get everybody off drugs. If we look at countries who have had drug death rates that have been on a par with what Scotland has now, countries like Switzerland and Holland and Portugal... None of them have solved the drug death crisis by sending everybody to residential rehabilitation centers <laughs> you know if not, it's not going to happen. People are going to continue to use drugs. And what we we are so risk-averse to, especially within prescribing, is giving people enough drugs so they have any type of euphoria. As soon as somebody has a little bit of euphoria, it's like you're mm. getting prescribed too much drugs. Yeah, you like know right? back on, yeah. yeah, we need to take you off that. We need to reduce your medication. You know, and people often just get to a place of stability with their medication, like methadone, um, in the community, and then they're they're encouraged and coerced to start detoxing in the same communities that they've been traumatised in the first place, where they've got a heroin dealer two doors up from them. It's no wonder that so many of our drug deaths have a combination of prescription and illicit substances, because mm-hmm. people just don't get the medication that they need to stay away from illicit substances. You know, so for me. That's the conversation now all the time. I'm not against residential rehabilitation or people living um, abstinent, drug-free lives who have pre- previously been problematic substance users. However, I know it's not the key protective factor against dying, and it's not the key uh, to to getting our drug deaths down to, to um, rates that don't make us the highest country in the
1: world. So for now, success is... The impact on the people who you're directly servicing so that's you know I think it's forty or fifty regular visitors to the to the uh, to the van um, but also the wider impact to us myself other people listening to sort of rethink and perhaps join in your mentality the group of people who feel that these issues around drugs aren 't going to be resolved by draconian uh, criminal interventions but actually by a more holistic compassionate realism and that certainly is something which i know from my situation i've had a very good life and i'm very happy um you know but to to be taken from a birth mother because of issues around all of this stuff and to know that these approaches were not in place back then and to some extent you know aren't aren't still in place i know that uh, you know that's a that's a that's a that's a little tragedy it's a tragedy for people to have to have those experiences of separation and uh and obviously the life that you've had as well yourself has been fraught with challenge um i wanted to end by saying that one of the things that strikes me about people who are going through a process of a recovery from addiction uh, and and uh and and dealing with that every day is i noticed there seems to often be uh a component of their recovery is a call to higher purpose, you know, a sense that actually part of how you recover is by being of use in the world to the people around you. And that's something that you, you can't argue that's what you're doing, that's completely what you're doing. Um, how important is that to your own recovery? Or, or, or yes. indeed, are there, are there risks? Are there risks to your own recovery because you're in closer proximity to some of the concerns
2: that you've had in the past? So, yeah, I think it's, it is sometimes, um, you know, this, this sort of calling to, to try and help others, to, to um, you know, give something back when you've been through struggles like homelessness and addiction. Um, and I don't know if you're aware, Vanity, but after 11 years of abstinence, I used drugs again recently. And I, uh, I nearly died, you know, I nearly died. And um, the simple reality is that, that that's what scares me. You know, that's what scares me so much about the, 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 the society that we still live in. You know, that if people do choose to live drug-free lifestyles and they can cope with that and they have the support, excellent. But for people that don't, that don't want to live drug-free for People who have lived a period of a, a drug free lifestyle but want to go back and use drugs again, they have got no option right now but to go to these illicit, um, you know, dealers of substances where you have no idea what's in them. Yeah. Um, so that there is this, uh, you know, sort of internal struggle with me because I, you know, I believe that, um, People should have the right to use drugs if they want to, and they should be able to have these substances without, you know, fearing what's in them is going to kill them. Um, so, yes, yeah, it's, it's been a real struggle um, for me personally. It was a real struggle, um, you know, having such a long time of not taking drugs to going back to taking drugs again. Um, and it has impacted all areas of my life, you know, like running this, this service has impacted greatly all areas of my life. But thankfully now, um, you know, I've got the support of an organisation behind me um, and the organisation that I'm working for now, you know, are just fantastic. You know, they employed me as an activist. And, you know, if, if you see any of my uh, social media stuff, you um, it stands out from anybody else that's in an employed job at the moment because I'm allowed to say what I want to say, um, yeah. and that's very, very hard to come by in this environment. So, you know, I thank <laughs> yeah. them so much for for giving me the opportunity to get paid at the same time as doing a job that I love.
1: Yeah. Um, listen, for me, I lived. I went to Glasgow when I was seventeen, and I lived there for seven years so to me Glasgow is very much kind of home it's where I became an adult and found myself and and uh, made all my friends and and I go back to Glasgow a lot to perform and to visit everybody and for me to know that it's somebody from my neck of the woods who's started this this uh started this movement here in the UK where it's much needed and in Scotland to know that that's someone from my neck of the woods from Glasgow or from Falkirk in your case but close enough um, is great because that's just the chutzpah of, um, of our local area isn't it to get up and, and do things and so thank you so much for the work that you're doing um, and thank you so much for coming on the Vanity project um, in our first uh, season and I'd love to catch up with you again in the future and find out how things are progressing.
2: That would be fantastic. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Is there any way that people can support your work? If there's a link or anything, uh, we can obviously post that for them to follow. Um, or indeed, they can follow you. You're on Twitter. Are you on Instagram?
2: Are you, what's your deal? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. It's uh, Pete Crycant uh, OPC. Uh, that's the same on Twitter. Uh, sorry, on Instagram as well. And that's really the best place to, to uh to follow uh connect and to support the work you know this is all about a public campaign for political change peter thank you very much Thank thank you
1: So that was uh, my conversation with the wonderful Peter Krykan, And it's so interesting doing this podcast that I'm going to get to have conversations with, um, I suppose, very serious people. Um, So to lighten the mood, as you all know by now, we always have Queen's Corner, a little gossip with one of my cabaret pals at the end of the Vanity Project podcasts. Um, Today, however, it's not a drag queen. It's actually a drag king and one of the UK's leading drag kings, drag kings, um, are on the rise they can be found in all sorts of unusual places now and uh, and he's here to talk to us today so please welcome Louis cypher hey hello love you all right i'm fantastic it's so nice that you've come on and i haven't spoken to you in a while so thanks for doing this i know
3: i was just saying like looking at you before in the picture no one can see this but i have to let them know that you're absolutely dreaming out of drag today babe
1: oh i know it's to be hiding me away when i'm not in a wig we hide me from public view, we don't want anyone to know that I'm actually a, a total ride.
3: <laughs> okay, yeah, a bit different for me out of drag, but yeah, yeah. Well, I can <laughs> just, I can just make the cups of tea for afterwards, it's fine.
1: For anyone listening um, that doesn't know, because they'll have heard of drag queens everywhere, I mean, everyone knows drag queens, they're everywhere, but you don't see as much about drag kings, although it's, you know, a performance form that goes back just as long as, as drag queens, really um do you want to fill people in a bit i mean what what is it that louis cypher does on stage and what is it that drag king does that's different from a drag queen
3: so i'd say that um a drag king in layman's terms is somebody that usually presents with masculinity at the forefront they're emulating parts of the patriarchy uh some of them look like blokes some of them don't um Mm. my particular drag is very much of like you know if you imagine if Del Boy was from the north and he worked in a working men's club that's kind of what my drag looks a bit like at the moment (laughs) sort of Swarovski track suits and lots of tacky fake gold jewelry and a really strange ginger mullet happening at the moment
1: you do have a very like working men's club energy on stage and I know that when you were first performing, you know, as Louis Cipher, you came up through the pubs and cabaret scene here in London, like Admiral Duncan. You were surrounded by all the drag queens. So you kind of, you've like, tread the boards, you've earned your stripes. You know how to do the whole pub entertainment thing.
3: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember uh, drag queen Frankie Fantastique, and yeah, she was the first person that sat down and did my drag face with me, and she showed me how, you ladies do all your contouring, and then we just would do it the opposite way to work yeah. out how to do it. And like, yeah, it was the first time I drew brows on, and it was hilarious. Um, yeah, it's come on, hopefully a little bit of a way there. But I'm I have such a different journey from other drag kings that you might speak to because I feel like some of them feel like they're pretty oppressed by the scene. And whilst I know that misogyny does exist within all walks of life, I've actually had a really great time. And I've had a lot of privilege because I came through drag idol, which was predominantly Queens. And a lot of them were like, you know, seasoned Queens and it was the thing to be in. And they kind of all just took me under their wing and I wasn't threatening. I wasn't annoying. I didn't go around bitching about everyone. I just showed up, did my thing, had the fun, got off stage. And then I can't really remember usually what happens after that.
1: Yeah. That's usually where I would enter stage left and then the rest <laughs> yeah. of the to write off. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess I guess the thing is, so people wouldn't, uh, people who don't know anything about cabaret might not realize that when, let's say, uh, uh, let's say a, a woman has decided that they're gonna perform as a drag king and they're gonna maybe, maybe they're gonna channel Al Pacino the way that I try to channel Liz Hurley. You know, mm-hmm. they take a sort of male archetype and they're putting that on stage, but because they are female, um, I think a lot of, of these performers feel they've been cut out of the storyline for what mm. drag is. And I, I, I would certainly say I would agree that I don't see that many drag kings. Mm. Um, and and I, I'm not going to tell them they're wrong for the reasoning for that. But I do also think, like, it's quite hard to do masculinity in a showy way. and sh- I totally agree. You need to give a show... And it just so happens that in the past century of our culture, the, the feminine as represented on stage tends to be the, the feathery, peacocky, glittery thing. And um, so I think it's like, it's, it's, it's a trickier task. So Absolutely. It, the task is harder. It's not, it's not just oppression. It's the task is harder.
3: Yeah. If you look at like, you know, a, mm. really, a really well-known female pop star, Then you think of like, you know, you think of like Beyonce, you think of like, you know, it's really high glamour, there's a lot going on, big costumes, lots of design. There's so much range in what they can do aesthetically, which essentially drag is you're messing with the aesthetic boundary of your own gender, aren't you? You're saying, hey, this is, I'm gonna paint a beard on, but it's still me behind here, but let's just pretend I'm a man for a minute. Whereas if you look at like really popular male singers, they're like your Michael Buble's. They just wear a suit and have a come over and a shaved in party. Like there's not really that much going on. It's not really that exciting. And you know, In terms of like voice, there's so much more range when you're exploring femininity. And it's empowering, it's super empowering. Masculinity is something that we've really suffered with, particularly like the toxicity of it at the moment. It's something that is very much what we're all aware of. It's all very much at the front of everybody's conversation. And so to get up there and perform it without offending men and to package it in an entertaining way is difficult you know, if you want to have something to say without making it too political, it's not enjoyable by people on a Saturday night. It, it's a it's a really, you know, tender, tender, fine line.
1: Yeah, I think you're right when you say that, like, even in the voice of a woman, I mean, men have lovely voices, but I, I find the voices, of you know, the great female singers, or operatic singers, you know, there's acrobatics that inspire kind of awe, because it's almost like an athletic level of singing. Now, obviously, male voices can do that as well. But uh, you know, women are the song birds, and in a funny way, even when it comes to dress and attire, women wear costumes at the Oscars, you know, but but men just wear uniforms. Like a suit is mm. a uniform, and mm. um, and there is a sort of regimentedness to that, which, you know, I think I actually quite like for men. Like I, I like I like it for them. I I like the uniformity of it, but also, you know, um, there's no reason why you shouldn't be more extravagantly dressed. Yeah um, and I
3: think that's happening now you know we've had people like Bowie we've had people like Prince and like you know they're all like they were mixing it back up in their day like you know a couple of decades ago and now we're coming back around because I feel like things have shifted where women are encouraged to wear more baggy relaxed stuff just to go out in leisure wear and that'll make you look rich men are like okay now here's this you know super masculine shaving moisturizer get this on your face and it's like now that's part of like masculine it's as if we've gone okay now let's switch the role again like everybody's folded in on themselves the roles have been so defined now we're going to encourage men to wear really tight jeans and and moisturize and pluck their eyebrows and that that doesn't make them effeminate it actually makes them more metropolitan we we, we're like we're messing with masculinity a lot at the moment I feel like in the Western world.
1: 200 years ago you know the men in court would have you know in in sort of uh, in high society would have wigs bigger than the wig I wear on stage Um, Mm and so the sort of, yeah, I think things are less fixed than people take them for granted to be, um, which is where, for me, I'm like, that's one of the great things about drag and performance generally. Performance is a form of play. Um, you know, it's 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 not just dress up because it's more than just the clothes, it's about the shifting sands of persona and identity and there's sort of some psychology at play. And that's, for, that's why I think that's why, and I mean this in the nicest way, it's why dumb people don't like drag.
3: Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) oh my god that's so
1: true (laughs) they're uncomfortable because they can't they don't know where they stand at any given moment and the truth is that if there's something to learn from drag it's that it probably doesn't matter where you stand everything's fine it's all like people are here to have fun there's a bit of a almost a psychedelic one love thing that happens when when you see a brilliant drag performance um yeah and i think you definitely bring you bring some of that on stage which i love and uh it's exciting watching what you're doing um You've just listened to our conversation, or at least a part of it, with myself and Peter Kraken. So, um, gosh, it's so nerve-wracking for me to do. Like, I'm used to this conversation we're having, and then when I'm trying to talk to to Peter Kraken, who, you know, the man the man has lived with addiction and and some faced real battles and really come out in such a way that supports other people going through the same. I really want to honor the conversation and do it justice, but it's really nerve-wracking because as you know, I struggle to take things seriously a lot of the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's
3: not the lightest of topics, is it? But I mean, yeah. we need people like him in the world, selfless people that go to the edge of the universe and turn around and like, hang on, actually, we can shift this and make this into something that helps a wider community. And he's really, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's something that he's passionate about. And I think to have that in today's modern world is, is imperative.
1: It's interesting how he was saying um or certainly you know in Scotland where his drug consumption vans were set up he has found that it appears now the Scottish government are, are they're starting they're really coming around to the idea that this might be because the Scottish government have been in power for 15 years and there hasn't really been a significant improvement in fact drug deaths have gone up um, or are still the highest in Europe. Um, but we know for a fact that the sitting government here with Priti Patel in the home office there's no way she's going to allow drug consumption bans in England it's just not with it they have a totally different approach to how we should be helping people and I think about how for me and you that have been Soho you know Soho mm. people for mm. well I've lived here 10 years and I think you've been here the same length maybe longer yeah yeah. we, we see homeless people we're friendly with homeless people who've who are obviously going through that stuff. They're obviously intravenous drug users in some case. And like, um, you know, we see that they're real people and we want, I don't know, I don't have the answers, but it seems like Peter Krykens found something that actually does help people at least for the for short to mid length of time and possibly for, for a long-term sense.
3: Yeah, I think it's, and I think it's really important. I do wish that this country would kind of release the stigma around, uh, uh addiction um because i think that they sort of tend to look at people who are struggling with addiction and sort of cast them off as if there's something wrong with them or we're supposed to look down on people and addiction and the only thing that, <laughs> that is different is this that they've not been able to cope any longer and that's how you yep. fall into the trap of addiction is that you can't cope any longer and you need out and you find something that works that numbs you and then before you know it like with something prolific whatever drug it is you're taking it's a slow and steady sl- like slope down you know i i myself yeah. have had have had like bouts of addiction and i wish there were places that i could have turned to you know and because a lot of it is is the shame that's attached to it it's not even yeah. about like what happens the next day i mean like you know a come down is bad enough but like if you're led to feel like you're the salt of the earth and the reason why you're having this self-destructive behavior is because you have nowhere to turn, to have something in play where it's like, you know, pop in and like, you know, have this support and it be without um, without any sort of like, okay, and you're broken and let's sit down and let's all like poke inside your head. It's someone that's obviously got experience as well. I think it's vital, I, I, I would have, you know, it wouldn't have taken me so long to turn my life around from being in that Soho scene had there been other things in play rather than me just feeling really ashamed because, you know, it's 3 p.m. and after being out three days, I'm finally going home. Do you know what I mean?
1: Do you think, because I, I think about this sometimes, like, um, I've had, well, we, you and I, we've been on the same bus in in life many many times and like we've had our party years and i still enjoy fun like i still you know night being a nightclub performer is great fun and you get to go and and dance and be up all night and talk to people and meet pop stars and it's really fun and all your friends are artists and that's great but at the same time i feel like it's been part of growing up like i'm not sure that an intervention by somebody would have sped up my healing process from Hmm. it's like you kind of have For me, I kind of had to get there in my own time. But definitely if I didn't have the internet where I was able to Google and like sit and read quite vociferously read about psychology and about mindfulness and about the effects of childhood events on your current life and all that. Like if I didn't know about any of that, if I didn't have the internet, I wouldn't have been able to find all of that. I wouldn't have gone to a library to find that. if, if my life had been in the 90s and I'd got myself in a pickle. And some of my other guests here on the podcast have talked about addiction too. Um, and it just, it amazes me that like, it amazes me that people grow up thinking that somebody with those issues is to be sort of disgusted or, or to be shown contempt to, because really it's just broken people or people struggling away.
3: Absolutely, I mean I for all of like sometimes I look back and I think oh my god I was in some really dangerous positions or oh my god I really took my body to the edge of the world but actually also let us not forget that sometimes I've spent hours and days speaking with people who felt exactly like I did in that moment and we were sharing a moment yeah we were like you know partaking in things that would have been frowned upon by the police, but you know, at that time, we, you know, you you're out at chill, and the people that you're with at that chill, you have this really incredible bond with, and sometimes, sometimes good, sometimes bad. It's it feels like a bit of a therapy procession amongst people that are oh, feeling yeah. that
1: same vibe. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if um, I mean, I would say if, well, while, 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 while I've had my run-ins with the substances. I've also had my limits and I've also known places I'm not going to go but I think that you know as those are sometimes luxuries that you know I I'm not going to be doing heroin you know there are things that have certain sort of ring fences around them that that you're not going to participate in but that's a ring fence that in a way is a luxury if I was homeless on the street do you know what I bet bet heroin would be just the thing when you're exactly and you know I worry about like you know with the lockdowns we've had and and you know just there's all this tension and and in the world I worry about friends I know how quickly it can become unaffordable to live in London rent and like Mm. how many performer friends I worry venues are not going to be investing in entertainment in the coming year because they're spending at the moment they're going to get spooked and you know people don't always realize how fast the spiral from sitting pretty on top to ending up in those situations can be so yeah. i mean, that's I mean why it I've only up- takes
3: it only takes two two bits of bad luck or two wrong moves and all of a sudden you've got no home it's such an yeah. extortionate cost of living in london say you're You know you work in a bar you work in a restaurant and the hours are so long the pay is not that great and your manager's like hey here's a bit of coke because i'm making you do your third 12 hour shift in a row and all of a sudden you know you're on that of like trying to keep up to make the money and then you get you get caught out you know and then you lose your job and you can't find another job because you're in London and all you know how to do is bartend. Your rent day comes, all of a sudden you've got no rent. You work your way through your friends. And this, in this scene that we're in, you know, how many people do you know that have gone down the road of like going on to crystal meth? I know quite a few and I've watched the dark road and they've been like marvelous, wonderful people. But what's happened is, is just that one time, just that one time they've had a bad day or, or, they had a good time and it was an accident or they were at a party, specifically like in our gay community, there's a lot of chilling. There's a huge drug culture amongst our community. And then before you know it, they've got no home and they've got no friends because they've stolen from their friends to try and feed their habit because they don't want to have a five day come down. They've got no job, so what have they got to do? They've got time to waste, they get on the apps, they follow the drugs around the parties on the apps. And Mm -hmm. then before you know it, you never hear from them again. And it's it's so sad,
1: but it's yeah. a reality. It must sound, I, I wonder sometimes like how dramatic it sounds to people who, you know, who, cause well, with it, I'm hoping that the podcast is going to be, as we, as, as we go through this, this limited run of 10 episodes, that people will be listening all around the world and they'll be like, what is going on? Is it absolute chaos in London? And in short, no, but also, yes, like. Um, if, you, if you work in nightlife, these are the things that you run into and come across. And like I said to Peter Kraken, my, my birth mother um, had all of her own issues with these things. That's why her kids were taken away from her. And so the impact of these things can be long lasting in people's lives. So to set up a drug consumption van, as he's done in Glasgow, and to, to sort of to guide government policy as an activist, to lead them by the nose, is um, really impactful work. Um, because it's going to help people m- who are already at near the very bottom of the spiral. It's maybe going to slow down that decline so that they, they can actually get resources to just sort themselves out. Because that's what we want everyone to do, right?
3: Yeah, yeah. You want to lift the stigma, lift the stigma out of it, lift the shame out of it. And just to have someone there who's like, on the page has the lived experience it's yeah you 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 can't buy that and you certainly can't have politicians just come up with that like you say, they've they the people that have lived through these times really have to lead the way in order for you know to do the right thing you know
1: yeah i knew that reflecting on on this conversation would be great (laughs) with you um you know some of my some of the queens who are joining me for it might be more drag kings i think but we'll see mm. it's definitely mostly queens we've got uh joining me for the other episodes um i've tried to match up with, with a subject where i'm like oh maybe they'll have something fun to say about that and and uh yeah i mean it's always wow. Well, it's always lovely to talk to you louis cipher and hopefully too, um, i'll be able to see you on stage again you're doing shows in london so we'll post your links um so anybody who's interested in coming and seeing you know The flip side of the coin of drag can come and see you
3: i'm shimmying but you can't see but i'm shimmying yeah please do (laughs) bab it's been really great to talk to you babe oh as always
0: There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
1: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part?